Welcome aboard, everyone, to the fun-filled ride that we are calling the Disney Film Project Podcast. This podcast is dedicated to the wide world of Disney films, whether it's the latest movie in theaters, the very first shorts that Walt made in Kansas City, or anything in between. We'll talk about films, topics around the films, the film on the bathroom floor, anything and everything about Disney movies. You're going to hear it here, and you're going to hear it here first, or, you know, maybe second or third. Just depends on the day. Uh, I'm your host, Ryan Kilpatrick, uh, owner, proprietor, blogger of Disney Film Project. It's a one-man band uh, that is at DisneyFilmProject.com. Uh, my co-host with me this evening, two of the finest film buffs around. First up, we have Mr. Todd Perlmutter, blogger for TouringPlans.com and all-around Disney tech support master for DisneyDrivenLife.com and just all-around swell guy. Welcome, Todd. How are you, sir? Hi, Ryan. I'm doing great. How is everybody? Uh, it's, we're we're doing well here in Casa Kilpatrick. How are Casa things down in the in the Perlmutter household? Oh, it's very good. I have coral reef in my belly. I'm happy. I, I would. That's very good. The, the trout was okay. The beans were great. That's all I'll say. All right. <laughs> that kind of frightens me. All right. Our <laughs> other co-host is the one and only Miss Brianna Alessio, renowned blogger at Adventures of Brie at adventuresofbrie.blogspot.com. All-around film lover, uh, my fellow TCM lover. Welcome, Brie. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I, the Vikings lost today, so I'm kind of sad about that. But, other, but I mean, I'm getting used to that. So other well, than my, that, Bears, my are... Chicago Bears won, so I'm very happy. I didn't know you were a Bears fan. I'm going to have to end this call. Oh, <laughs> no. Please don't do that. <laughs> Of course, but the most important part of our show, however, the lovely and talented producer, Ms. Cheryl Perlmutter, the local Disney fan, internet superstar, and without whom you probably would not be hearing any of this. Hello, Cheryl. Hello. How are you today? Lovely. She is uh, the one responsible for all of the wonderful sounds that you will hear this evening because the rest of us are frankly too lazy to do anything about it. All right, so today we are talking about Beauty and the Beast, the 1991 animated classic from Disney. Uh, Beauty and the Beast, released, as I said, in 1991. It was nominated for Best Picture, the only Academy Award-nominated Best Picture animated feature. Um, so it's a great film uh, and something we wanted to say, kick off our little show with a discussion of Beauty and the Beast. Um, some of the background from the movie, it came from the Disney animated folks, as we mentioned, but uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg, when he was still in charge of animation, started the film. Uh, it was directed by Gary Trousdale and Kirk Wise. Beauty and the Beast was a huge hit. Uh, it was also one of the first films that Disney produced that had a screenplay. Linda Wolverton wrote the screenplay for Beauty and the Beast and, uh, as I mentioned, was nominated for Best Picture. So, talking about the movie, I guess we'll start with the story of the movie. So, uh, starting, I guess, with you guys, what did you, what did you guys think? Um, the original story and the movie kind of differ a lot. Um, I don't know if you, if you guys are familiar with the, with the story of the movie, the, the fairy tale. Todd, I don't know. Have you, you, you seem like a big fairy tale reader to me. Um, so, yeah, but actually, I don't think I've ever actually read the fairy tale version of this before. I'm actually kind of interested in what you, the angle that you've just taken here with this. So I'm kind of <laughs> ready, ready to hear the real fairy tale version. Have you heard it before, Bree? Have you heard the fairy tale? No, I'm honestly not familiar with it at all. I mean, growing up with Disney, that's all I ever knew of Beauty and the Beast. So Really? Wow. Yeah, I mean, Beauty and the Beast came out when I was two. So I pretty much just grew up with that and never knew the original story. Okay, I don't. I didn't need to hear that. that I'm sorry. <laughs> you two strikes against Bray. Wow, okay. Yeah, you've got one more left. Ding. <laughs> Todd's keeping track. Yeah. All right, Todd, mark that down in the book. 
Okay, so the original story of Beauty and the Beast, the way it goes, is that there is a wealthy merchant who lives in a mansion with his three daughters, and the youngest one is named Belle. She's the only one who's actually somewhat, you know, not unkind. Uh, and eventually when he loses all of his money, he hears... Uh, he, he sends he and his daughters out to a farmhouse to work for their living. And several years later, he hears that one of the trade ships he had sent off with some of his money um, has come into port. And therefore, he goes to the city to see if there's anything uh, on the ship left and they could regain their fortune. And what happens is the, the other da- he asks his daughters before he leaves for the city – you know, what can I bring you back as a token of my affection? And his other daughters are asking for, like, gold and jewels and all this sort of thing. And his daughter Belle, of course, being the nice one, asks for a single rose. And so touched by that, the merchant leaves, and he finds out that his ship's cargo has been seized, but he he gets the rose. When he returns, he gets lost in a forest, and this is where it kind of comes back to where you, you see it in the fairy tale in the movie, he comes back and gets lost in a forest, finds a castle for shelter. He gets confronted by the beast. The beast says, you know, why do you have this rose? And he says, it's for my daughter, Belle. And the beast agrees to let him go only if Belle will come in his place. Belle does. And then kind of from there, what happens is Belle comes and lives at the um, at the mansion with the beast. And every night they have dinner. And every night the beast asks him to marry her. And every night she says no. Oh. Yeah, it's very romantic. It's very sad. Um, and eventually what happens is he figures out that, that she's sad and homesick, and he agrees to let her go uh, visit. But she And again, just like in the movie, he gives her uh, an enchanted mirror and a ring to see what's going on back at the, uh, the castle. And the ring lets her return to the castle if she turns the ring around her finger three times. So then what happens, she goes back and finds out, uh, her sisters are super jealous, and they incite a mob, basically, um, to, to go and kill the beast. She gets back, and the beast actually um, uh, is, is being destroyed. And he's lying – I take that back. He's lying dead of heartbreak, believe it or not. And Aww. so when he gets back to – when she gets back, she kisses him, and they live happily ever after. And I, I have scene. A, I have a question in there. No, did, did I did I just catch that that Gaston actually equals the two stepsisters or sisters or whatever they were? Yeah, so that's that's funny because uh, yeah, basically Gaston or the the steps the sisters are the sisters aren't in this, and Gaston kind of takes their place. You're absolutely right about that. That's that's, that's kind of strangely weird. Yes, um, in, a, in a Cinderella sort of sense. Now, now there are no enchanted wardrobes and plates and spoons and no, keyboards. no. None of that. So, like, in the original fairy tale, the, the servants are all invisible. Invisible? Yes. So there's no there's no servants. And by the way, speak, so we'll, we'll get to the servants in a, in, a, in a minute. But Sure. I didn't mean to jump the gun. But No, no. But, I mean, like, I've always wondered, like, when they turn back to human, like, what happened to all the clocks and stuff in, in the castle? That's, and the plates, that's a good point, yeah. Supplies without knowing the time or day or anything. But, but you're like on track 12 of the soundtrack right now when we're talking that, so. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, like, so when they when they started creating the story for the movie, it's not a very exciting story. Like, the story I just told you is not that exciting. I mean, a guy sitting at dinner every night asking someone to marry him. Yeah. It's not very exciting, so they had to figure out a way to, to fix it, and actually, um, they they started fixing it through the song process with Ashman and Minkin, 
Um, Howard Ashman did the music for the for the movie. Alan Menken did the lyrics, and it was um, it was Menken who who basically did a lot of the work on the story, breaking the story with Katzenberg and the directors, and then had um, Linda Wolverton come in and actually write the script for it. Where are we so where are we going with this? Um, I it's thought it's an I thought there was some story, yeah. I thought there were some interesting things with some of the actors in this. Because a lot of the actors, with the exception of Angela Lansbury, are actually have their major their major well known role was a television role. Yeah, it it's actually even more so than that. Like the the roles that most of these folks are famous for, like Paige O'Hara and Robbie Benson are are more they're stage performers. Mm. More that's so than, than T V performers. And I think that's intentional because it was it, like the, this movie more so than any of the other Disney musicals is much more about it's much more like a stage musical. It, that's the way it was written. That's the way Ashman and Macon wrote it so right. that the songs weave into the story to make it uh, kind of one thorough. I don't know what I'm trying to say here. The songs weave into the story, back into the dialogue, back into the songs. It's like one continuous cycle as opposed to other musicals where everybody just kind of stops and breaks into song like they do on Glee or something. <laughs> That's true. I was thinking more of like uh, Jerry Orbach who does L Lumiere, right? He is um, Law and Order. Right. right? Yeah. That's his primary character. That's what everybody knows him as, the, the cop on Law and Order. And David Ogden Steers is well known for playing Charles Emerson Winchester on MASH. Right. Right. And he's plagues Cosworth. And it's very, very interesting the way they go there. Um, you know, I was kind of looking on the background and there's some connections. Like I know – like Joanne Worley who was the wardrobe, which I find to be just like one of the funny side enchanted creatures in the show. Yeah. Um, From she, laughing, right? What? From Laughing. Yeah. She was also on – she's – was on Love Boat a lot, and she was actually on an episode of Murder, She Wrote. So she actually had a prior connection with Angela Lansbury. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Like 20 degrees of separation. They're all yeah, connected. So, yeah, there's like a little bit yeah. of this going on in the movie. But it's, uh -huh. a, it's an interesting point because, like, yeah, none of these folks are – it's not like you'd see in, in animated movies now. Like, you know, Megamind's the big one that's out right now, and it's Will Ferrell, and it's Tina Fey, it's Brad Pitt. You know, not people that you would think of as – um, you know, they're just superstars, but they're not necessarily, you know, actors of the first order or anything like that. But, you know, like you were saying, you mentioned Jerry Orbach. I mean, he was a, he was a big Broadway actor long before Law and Order and the same with Steers and the same with Angela Lansbury. Like all these folks were, were, were trained, uh, you know, as Broadway actors. And I think that's what they were looking for when they, when they cast the movie was folks who could, who could bring off that kind of Broadway musical sort of feel. So, yeah. so you think because it was because they knew it was going to be a high musical piece because Little Mermaid did so well that they took this and they said let's get some really good bang up theater actors because those are the, usually the people who can belt out the lyrics and get them going. Is that what? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it, I think you know it's it, it was something where they decided. Looking back on it, so if you look, if you watch like the special features on the DVD and stuff, they didn't even start this movie until Mermaid was already out. So like normally it's like a three or four year process of stuff going through, you know, the story phase and all that kind of stuff. Like this movie, they didn't even start it until Mermaid was already out. It was kind of like 
what's happening now, like with Princess and the Frog came out, then they decided to do more movies. It was the same sort of thing. Like, they didn't decide to do this movie, but then they set a release date in 91. So they completed the whole movie, really, in almost two years. Because they realized it was so short. Yeah, Mermaid came out in 89, and then this movie... I mean, they had started working on it, but they didn't commit to doing it until Mermaid did so well. And then, yeah, it came out in, I think, November of 91. Right, and technically, and Mermaid was the first of the return movies, right? Yeah. So, so they had that makes sense that they would wait like that. Right. I noticed at the end of uh, Beauty and the Beast, I think it was a tribute to Howard Ashman who had yeah. passed away, and yeah, and it said to the man who gave the mermaid her voice and a beast his soul, and that just got me. That just completely got to me seeing that because they were such musical geniuses, him and Mankin. It was unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, that was one of the things that, again, like, if you if you watch some of the stuff on the DVD or read, or read about the making of the movie, that was one of the things that, that really broke him up is, like, right before the movie opened, um, he died. He passed away. Ashman passed away. And it was, you know, it was heartbreaking because he had been he had been kind of this, the driving force for the whole movie, and he didn't get to see it finished. Mm. But, mm, sad. You talked about Gaston, and I think... Uh, Todd and talking about subbing that him in for the sisters. I thought what was really kind of funny is the way that it, when we were watching the movie, I, you realize that Gaston and the Beast are mirror images of each other. So they start yes. off, you know, in the beginning of the movie, Gaston is the handsome, you know, kind of funny guy, and of course the Beast is grumpy, and they switch roles through the movie. And I must have seen the movie ten times before I watched it this last time, and before I figured that out. So I actually have some information about this because I actually – this was actually something I wanted to touch on is there's actually – this is a highly, highly feministic movie, right? Because this is about the independence of the woman and the growth and her ability to control her man, right? Because what she does is it says that that love literally – it's not just the beast on the outside that's conquered here, right? It's the beast on the inside because even the intro – in the very beginning, it's, he was not a nice person at 11 years old, which is another thing I want to come back to for a second. <laughs> um, it, it's, it, it's interesting when you think about it that way because she doesn't just conquer his outer beast because his outer beast is just a representation of the soul. That's the curse, right? Mm-hmm. And he has to conquer what's inside because once the inside becomes beautiful, he'll become beautiful again. That's really what it is. And she gets him there because she un- she controls the man, you know. The, he, she controls the beast and makes him a man again. Basically, is what happens. That's but it's it, it's really about what's inside him. It's not about what's outside him. And she sees that, you know. She sees past the layers that scare her in the dungeon in the beginning or the tower. I'm sorry, she's actually in a tower, right? Sorry. Yeah. It's a dungeon in a tower. <laughs> it's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> And so it, it's it's, but you're right. There is that Gaston is all the women love him, and by the end he is just this. It, it's he's become like that evil monster that he's that he's trying to defeat. You know, it's it's I agree a hundred percent there with the transformation. Sorry. Yeah, it's just interesting because like it's not just like at the beginning of the movie he's one way, and at the end of the movie he's one way. They actually cross paths in the middle. So there's there's a point in the middle where Gaston's in the in the pub, you know, and the the Gaston song goes on, and then at the end of that is when he starts 
coming up with the evil plot. And up to that point, he'd just been kind of annoying and a nuisance. And then he right. starts coming up with this evil plot. And then you flash over to the Beast, and the Beast is all of a sudden kind of falling out a little bit. And, like, literally, if you watch it, you can see the whole movie. Like, they they always juxtapose those two. And it's just interesting because it's not some you know, Gaston's not a, a character that was in the original story. It's somebody who was created for the movie, and it was interesting how they choose, chose to play those two off of each other. Yeah. Yeah, see, I never saw a comparison between the two until you just mentioned it, Ryan. Now I'm starting to see it, and I kind of want to watch it again to get a better feel. Yeah, it, it, it kind of—I didn't notice it until this last time that I watched it, and it was, like I said— and, and like, you know, the scene, so the scene where they're in the pub and he sings a song and then he kind of has this idea and then you see the beast and, and the whole ballroom sequence and everything. And there's the sequence just either right before or right after that is where he meets the kind of the evil mad doctor in the pub and starts, you know, and it's all lit really darkly and he's really turning evil at that point. Is that before or after the expectorating? I'm trying to remember. Sorry. Before or after the what? The expectorating. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> the lyrics in this, I have to say, the lyrics in these songs, awesome. <laughs> they really awesome. are. I mean, it's it's amazing. Uh, did, did, did The last version I watched, which was actually this morning, was the extended version. And I'm not actually sure I can tell what was extended because it's not like super much longer. It's only like 10 minutes longer, right? And yeah, I think it's, it's first. The only part that they added in was they redid the song Human Again um, for the DVD. Well, actually, they okay. put it out in IMAX, and they added Human Again for the DVD, um, you know, a little extra money. And yep. the reason why it wasn't in there in the first place was they were trying to deal with the whole aspect of time. And it was like from the time Bell – so the, the story takes place over a fall to a spring – which is which something another thing we can talk about, but the the way so the way it works is it starts in the fall and it ends in the spring, and of course the the backgrounds and the weather reflect Belle's mood, which is kind of a classic gothic thing, right? So mm-hmm. in the fall she's quote unquote dying, she's going into the castle, and in the winter she her she's fro- she's dead basically frozen, and then as as things thaw out with the beast, you can even see it like the whole during the something there sequence is when when you see the birds and everything, it's literally as things are thawing mm. outside, she's thawing too. Something there was an is an interesting number because it probably been a couple years before since I'd last actually watched it. And what I liked about it was that I didn't recall that they're not actually like mouthing the lyrics themselves. It's it's like their thoughts almost, right? right. Being sung. It, it's very that's very interesting because one, I can't imagine singing in my head, but <laughs> it's not something I do. Um, but two, it's it's like it, it's very there's a con- there's almost a conversation and the lyrics are very playful against each other. And it's a short song, but it seems so much longer because it's 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 like the interesting turning point of the movie. So your 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 head is kind of doing this with it and drawing it out, right? And and I'm sorry because that really worked well on an audio podcast, didn't it? <laughs> I, I'm pulling my fingers apart because that's the casting direction thing for like draw it out a little bit more. And um, the when they do this, it, it's just I, I just love that conversation that they're having with each other without actually having words. Mm-hmm. And you're hearing it sung, and there's something 
truly beautiful about that entire moment because of it. Yeah. The entire film, I noticed the lyrics were gripping. I mean, even to the, it's, it's cliche, but I mean, the song Beauty and the Beast itself was just unbelievable. Um, and I noticed, it was funny, I hadn't seen Beauty and the Beast in a long time. And I mean, since I was probably like eight or nine, but I remembered every single lyric of the song in the beginning. Um, I'm not sure the name of it, the prevent, when she sings about this provincial life and the Bell. The is, the song's oh, Bell, is, yeah. Just Bell, yeah. Yeah, that that even that song, I mean, just just meant so much, and to know that like that, I remembered every single lyric from it too. It was, it was incredible. I, I like that m- point where she makes it back to her house, and then you think the song's over, and then like something goes on, and then she comes back outside for a second and kind of <laughs> sort of finishes the song. Finishes it up, right? Right. And, yeah. But you know, but that to me, that lyric of that she sings when finishing up was all she wants in life is adventure, and it's more than what she has. You know, she kind of, it's kind of sort of like, oh yeah, and here's how you sum up everything I just sung for the past three minutes. Right. But it's 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 gripping because she she looks like she means it at that moment. It's not just a song; it's really truly what she is at the, at that point in her life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when yeah. you think about it, that song that that one song is just kind of blows my mind because it's it's like you said Todd it's like a three and a half minute song but it delivers the entire exposition of the movie in that one three and a half minute sequence so you have the beast sequence that starts starts the film right the stained glass window sequence that tells how he became to be a beast and why he needs somebody to love him and that sort of thing every other character in the movie though is set up in that one song in three and a half minutes it gives you who Belle is what her motivation is who Gaston is what his motivation is where Belle lives why she wants to get away, you know, all the things that you need to know about Belle, Gaston, and where they are in one three-and-a-half-minute sequence. It's astounding. Yeah. Completely agree. Me too. So moving on, uh, I know that we talked a little – we've talked somewhat about some of the characters, but – so, Brie, who's your favorite character in the movie? Oh, God. Um – I mean, I've always had a close connection with Belle, but I think my favorite would be Lumiere because um, mostly for the reason that I've always had a high respect for Jerry Orbach, and especially you now since he died, it's very emotional for me to watch the movie and, and hear his voice to that character because it gives it that much more life. Um, but but to hear, you know, to feel his spirit through that character means a lot. But yeah, no, I've always loved Lumiere. What about you, Todd? Um, well, hmm, I, you know, I want to come back to, I liked, it's, it's really funny because, I mean, I like Lumiere a lot too, just because, but I think that's more because of like, you know, the, just, he's cool, right? He's the cool character. He's throwing around the fire a lot. He's doing the things, but the character that really always catches me off guard that I particularly enjoy, and I like because she gets a little bit more in the extended is, strangely enough, the wardrobe character. I don't know why I like the wardrobe character so much, but first of all, she's just wardrobe, right? She's the only one that's actually, other than, her and Stove are named after what they actually are, and everybody else has these very complicated names other, that, <laughs> otherwise. But um, it, it, she's got this playful nature about her, right? And it's ver- very funny because there's one point during the Human Again thing where she's actually put on a costume from inside herself, that's a bathing suit essentially stuffed herself into it and she dives into the pool, right? Because she's just having fun. And in the battle at the end, she somebody she takes somebody into herself, 
they shuffle around a bit and she spits them back out basically and the guy's dressed in this really bad cross between <laughs> Ariel's outfit and a hula girl with a big tall red hair and it's it's just this but that's her attitude right and it's very funny because she's Joanne Worley she's the she's the comedian of the of the group of the cast members and so they kind of play that into the character a little bit and I like that a lot yeah they, they did a really good job of of marrying, I mean, Disney always does this, but they did really good job marrying the voices and the personality of the people to the characters. So, I mean, yeah. if, like if you've ever seen Orbach in anything besides Law and Order or even in Law and Order, he's a very playful kind of guy, and they got they really captured that in in, in Lumiere. And Steers, the same thing with Cogsworth. David Ogden Steers does Cogsworth. He you really captured that kind of stuffy, uh, aristocratic, but yet still kind of fun attitude. I thought they did a really good job with that. Um, my favorite character is Gaston. I just he cracks me up. Really, Gaston? <laughs> yes, the expectorating, as we mentioned before, you know, in the middle of the movie when he's singing, when they're singing the Gaston song, that song just won me over for him. I mean, okay, I get the fact that he tries to stab the beast at the end, but you know, everybody makes mistakes. You know, I mean, we have to be a little forgiving. <laughs> I just like Gaston because I mean, like, he just. He's persistent. You got to give him that. Yeah, he has a. He gets it in his head, and he causes trouble for the movie. Yes, I would agree with that. Right. And without him, really, would the movie be as interesting? No, actually, if it had been two sisters, it would have been actually pretty boring. I think, to be honest. And right. what are they going to do? I. They can't be any cooler than the uh, sisters in Cinderella, right? So, but I don't want to go there. That's a different movie. Yeah, that's all right. Um, another can, can I say something about the transformation back for a second? No. Why did why was Cogsworth I, I ignored you. Um why <laughs> was Cogsworth free. the only one that looked pretty much exactly the same and everybody oh. else turned it <laughs> That's not true. Lumiere does too. No, Lumiere does too, yes. Well, not it sort of, but I mean facially the same, but but Cogsworth literally his hair is still combed like the top of his like his thing is, is, yeah. is, is, you know, it, everything looks exactly the same as he did. Lumiere looks like a person version of the candles, but Cogsworth looks like the same clock but with skin, and it's kind of creepy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I love toward the beginning when, um, <clears throat> when um, what's his Maurice, right? Is Bell's father's name? Yeah, yeah. I, I was confused that um, when he gets to the house and he takes. Cogsworth and he starts examining him and everything and Cogsworth is complaining what are you doing to me put me down you know and everything and I always laugh hysterically at that scene because you know he puts so much emotion into it and I'm imagining like David Ogden Steers actually saying that to someone put me down you know <laughs> great love it. anyone who could lift David Ogden Steers should be in the NFL I'm just saying <laughs> in one hand yeah, no <laughs> I was like, I like, uh, the other reason I like Gaston is because I like LeFou, his little sidekick guy. Yes. I think yeah. that he, he cracks me up, especially just the willful ignorance. Like when Gaston gets, when Bill slams the door in Gaston's face and he ends up in the, in the mud and LeFou strikes up the band anyway. It's just, <laughs> I know so many people who are like that. I, I like when he kind of sort of LeFoe in the uh, – when he's dancing around and he's because he's, he kicks off the song. He's basically singing the song about Gaston, and in that beginning part where he's where he goes any Tom, Dick, and Stanley, and he like ticks them off a little bit because he's walking out of their heads and 
that would tick me off too. And they're, <laughs> they're like, they're, they're ready to beat him up. And he, and they start to swing him around the room and stuff like that. And he's still singing away, doing his thing, <laughs> enjoying himself. I just, yeah. you know, it's, it's very entertaining. That's what I mean. He's just got this willful ignorance of like, yeah, everyone's probably mad and, but whatever, it's my time to shine. <laughs> <laughs> now um, I have a question. Like, is there any character, I'll start with you, Todd, is there any character in particular that you feel you relate to? Ooh, relate to. I'd love yeah. to be as cool as Lumiere, but I'm not. Um, <laughs> I think I think because I tend to overanalyze and pay attention to like little details and get upset when they don't go quite the way I like, probably Cogsworth. Okay. You know, because I kind of, you know, I kind of see my plans get laid out. And then, like, tackle, like, dominoes all the time, and that's that's Cogsworth, like, all the time in this movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then sometimes I'll play into it because, you you know, you can ask Cheryl sometime is I will um, – I'll do this thing where I will go, oh, yeah, I meant to do that, you know. And, I and you, like, the other day we took it – we were coming in the back way to Disney, and I took – and you wouldn't understand this if you've lived down here, but there's two roads in when you're on 535, which is the road behind Magic Kingdom. And one is called Buena Vista, and the other one's called Vista. And I took Vista when I meant to take Buena Vista, but Vista actually worked out better. And I said, "See, I meant to do that." Sorry, uh, but like because mm-hmm. he's at the end of the number. Remember, he's going in the beginning of um, what's which number is it? Hang on, I'm going to figure this out. The uh, and be our guest, right? Sorry, I don't know why I'm, it took me so long to figure that one out. Um, I was and about be our guest. Did you watch the movie? Because, yeah, 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 okay, yeah. Just I'm, I'm just, yeah. <laughs> so Pierre Gast, remember in the beginning, he's going, we have to be quiet, shh, no noise. And Lumiere's like, no, we're going to sing and we're going to dance and we're going to do our whole thing. And the whole time he's kind of like going through it knowing, no, no, no. And then he gets burnt and then he's kind of getting into it at the end. And at the yeah. end he goes, that was a great number, everybody. Well done, everybody. Awesome. You know, that whole thing he does because he kind of goes from the plan to the, okay, this is what I'll have to live with. <laughs> you yeah. Know, that's, <laughs> Always be adaptable, right? Yes, always be adaptable. <laughs> what about you, Ryan? Who do you relate to? Uh, the Beast, I have to say. Because, yeah. Because uh, I, I'm pretty grumpy on occasion, and uh, I can see I can see myself. Uh, you could probably ask my wife. I, I, I probably a few times uh, just get a little grumpy, and you know, it takes it takes a, the soul of a woman to calm me down. As, as Todd mentioned earlier, you know that whole feminist empowerment thing that I I was listening to, but I don't quite understand. Um. <laughs> and you're a little beastly too that's what sally says anyway yeah absolutely <laughs> wholeheartedly um were there any characters you guys didn't like like not that you were i mean gaston's one of those you're not supposed to like but were there any characters in the movie you didn't like oh hmm. i've stumped the panel yeah hmm Oh, I just I, want to say here also that the footstool should receive an honorable mention because he is amazing. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Does you just want to scritch him behind his curtails? I do. <laughs> I just want to give him a good kiss on the face. I just love him. But um, no, any any characters that I don't particularly like? No. I mean, I guess LeFou Le, Le because, I mean, he's for me, he's just too creepy. I don't think I could ever like him very well. But I don't know. <laughs> You don't like LeFou? I don't know. I, I just, he, he creeps me out. I mean, if he snuck up behind me, I would probably run away screaming. I don't know. Like, he frightens me. I don't know. I gotcha. Yeah, uh, Bree, you, you didn't tell us which character you relate to. 
Um, definitely not in looks, but uh, probably Belle because of her compassion, her wanting to find Prince Charming, and her, um, I don't know, her will for life, her love of books. I've always loved reading, and I've always had an extensive collection of books. Uh, so I feel I relate to her in many ways, but again, not in looks. <laughs> she's gorgeous. So. You're far too modest. Uh, but you just got to sweep your hair a little bit and... Yeah, exactly. You just got to make sure you get the hair thing going. See? And it's Done. Done. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> um, you know, the um, – I. why did they make the guy who ran the asylum so creepy? I guess – is he Monsieur d'Arc? Was that who he was? Monsieur d'Arc. Um, oh, d'Arc. Uh, yeah, the, 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 he was played by Tony Jay, who um, – he, um, if you if you ever watched Hunchback of Notre Dame, Notre Dame, the same uh, directors, Wise and Truesdale directed that film. He played Judge Claude Frollo in that movie. Um, so they uh... came back. And he, he's a um, he's a he's definitely a Broadway trained actor. He he was all over. Um, he was a former member of the Royal Shakespeare Company. So his he's he's known as that, and he, he's done all sorts of. Uh, here, here, here's an incident. Right, I was looking at this particular voice. I just have to call out this particular voice work because he. Did you know that he did the voice of Magneto in X Men Legends? <laughs> no. Which is a, which is which for people who don't know is a video game from about 15 years ago at this point, right? 15. Oh, yeah. Video game at that. A really cool video game. Yeah. Um, wow. Sorry, I just mean. Did we, oh, and the narrator on the Teen Titans, but that would be the wrong company, so we won't talk about that company. <laughs> Hey, what was everyone's uh, favorite scene in the entire film? Well, for me, it's the, it's the Gaston scene. Not the most riveting or most powerful scene in the whole movie, but when they're in the pub and singing the song and, and talking about how he's the size of a barge and all that good stuff, I, that's the stuff I love. I, mean, I love how he kind of he kind of hulks up to at that point where he says he's the size of the barge because he literally gets bigger at that moment. Yeah, you know, because he kind of waves back and forth and then he's like yeah. big, he's, you know, puffs his chest out and is ready to go. Yeah. I love the battle scene at the end because it's just so cool to watch them fight back and actually get to use what they are in that way. You know, it was very creatively done. You know, you know like the feather dusters are like going in people's faces and the trunk like eats the guy, you, you know, all sorts of little gotchas like that. And uh, Man, you chose my favorite part. <laughs> that was yours? It was actually, yeah, well, I... Technically, I have two favorite parts. Number one is, is that one because I love how they just have so much drive in them. And it's when Mrs. Potts has all of a sudden her face just turns almost evil at like, and she goes, go! And they all like drop their, their they, knives they, or whatever. They, they dump the, the tea on them like it's like hot oil like they used to do over castle walls. They dump the tea down on the guy. It's like right. everything. And they are just like mean, all out mean and getting those those villagers it's pretty cool yeah it's it's great like all of a sudden you see a different side of them emerge it's it's wonderful <laughs> it's like one of the best siege scenes i mean like you know lord of the rings and all that kind of stuff you've seen all kinds of great castle sieges and everything but as a, as a person who likes all that medieval stuff uh it's, it's one of the best scenes i've ever seen of like people putting on a siege you know it's, yeah, absolutely. It's it's very much um exactly from the moment when they chop down the tree and turn it into the the siege door pounder thing i don't that has a battering ram that's the word i'm looking for they turn into the battering ram that's exactly what happens in the frankenstein movie remember they actually they actually chop down the tree 
cut it, carve it into a battering ram, and they walk up to the castle door with it, and they do that same exact ramming, of course. And, and you know, the Frankenstein monster was actually a little bit more clever, but that's a different story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he wasn't hiding, cowering, and, and almost dying of a broken heart as opposed to actually dying like the other story. See, I was listening earlier. There you go. <laughs> um, so it, it, it's very interesting because you could tell that someone – who worked on that scene had a love of that movie and wanted to somehow relate it to what was going on. And it is relatable. So, right. Yeah. I actually, um, when I was watching it this time, I, it was actually related me back to another movie and Brie actually recommended this one to me, which was the, the Errol Flynn adventures of Robin hood. Mm-hmm. Just, just the chaos and stuff of what's going on inside the castle. It was very similar to that movie to me. You, you think yeah. you, you guys talking the, the stair fighting scene that's famous from that movie or the other scene? Oh no, you're talking Robin hood. I'm thinking, Sorry, I'm thinking something else. But... No, no, there was a stair fighting. Scene. Oh, there is. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. Between that, uh, the... Errol Flynn and Basil Rathbone, they go at it at the end with their right sword. up and down the stairs, <laughs> and that, and then later on, Princess Bride makes fun of that same scene. So yeah, yeah. Oh. But it's just the, the chaos. So like the stair fighting scene in that movie <laughs> is just one part of it. But then all around, there's all kinds of stuff. You know, just like in Beauty and the Beast, all kinds of people just you know being knocked this way and that. It just it reminded me a lot of that when I watched it this time. It's also very classic because whenever they're having those chaotic battles, there is really – and it, here too because Gaston is seeking out the beast. And there, there's that classic one-on-one battle that's going on always during one of these chaotic battles in the movie where the one guy is seeking out the other guy to have their head-to-head, right, which is what Gaston is doing. And the, here too, the, you, you know, the, this is just like it's a carried-over movie theme that's – that somebody just loved that aspect and they worked it into the film because they knew it would work right and be right here. Right. Well, it's the natural it's the natural end to the movie to have those two characters face to face because we talked you know we talked about how like they're mirror images of each other yep. and at that very end of the scene so this kind of actually takes me to the next thing I was going to talk about which is the animation the guys who animated the the, the characters were two of the best animators working then and now. Um, Glenn Keane did The Beast and Andreas Deha did Gaston and you can see when at the end of the movie when Gaston ri- kind of rises up with the knife to, to to attack the beast he his face his facial structure actually somewhat slightly changes to be like more beast like yeah and it was yeah. A, it's a little thing and you don't notice it when you're just watching the movie but when you if like if you look at it closely he he it's it's very distinct in how his face actually changes to become more beast-like, and that's kind of the final nail in the coffin of, like, okay, his transformation's complete. And then he takes the Wiley e. Coyote fall. <laughs> right, <laughs> right down into the Oh, pit. yeah. Almost completely with, you just expect the poof, but it doesn't happen. <laughs> I, always, I, I always prefer the, uh, I always like the goofy fall when, when he makes the, that noise. Yeah. That's, that's my favorite. <laughs> so um, I touched on this at the very beginning, but now the the roast is wilting on his 21st birthday, okay? At a point during the movie, Lumiere makes the comment that they have been cursed for 10 years. That means he got cursed when he was 11 years old. Now, he looked a whole lot older than 11 in the stained glass scenes in the very beginning, and I just – I've always wondered about that. It, is it, – was that a gaffe? Was that on purpose? Because he was a prince, but he would have been a pretty young prince. And would he have really been answering the one answering the door to be the one who got cursed? And what was going on there? And it was a, good a little question. confusing to me. It's a good question. Yeah. 
I think honestly, my opinion is that they just they used to dress those guys up like little Lord Fauntleroy all the time anyway. So, you know, he was he was just dressed maybe older than he was. I'm trying to make excuses here. I have nothing for you, Todd. No, I, I couldn't find anything on it, so I don't I don't expect you. It's just, it's just an int, there's there is that aspect of because you get you kind of sort of think until you hear that until you happen to catch that line by Lumiere, which you might not catch on your first watching of the movie because it happens just once really quickly. Um, with a 10-year time period that you might think that this is only like two years that the guy's been the beast, but he's been the beast a real long time, and he's had a lot of time to sit and get angry and stay hateful about himself. And it's it's interesting how also how quickly he converts because like you said, it's, it's, it's a fall through a spring essentially, and then boom, he's done. He's there. He's come right. around. He's in love. He wants to be different, and it's he changes. I mean, you see it too. You know, that's that's the other thing. I mean, his clothes change, the way he dresses change. He stands more upright. He doesn't he doesn't want to be where he was anymore. So, the scene that was um, very powerful for me to to watch. I mean, just to show you that how powerful Disney makes their cartoons is the way he. Um, the look on his face at the end when Gaston came in with the bow and arrow and he had it aged, the look on the beast's face was just so human. I mean, yeah, he wasn't human anyway, but still, like, you know, it was just so powerful the way he just looks at Gaston and then back. It's like he's just saying, kill me, you know, just just go ahead and kill me. And it was such a heart-wrenching scene for me. I mean, that was just... Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that's the thing that... um that that Keen I thought did really well when he was animating him was like he definitely he doesn't look like a beast of course he or he does look like a beast rather but he's got such a humanity to the way that he moves and the way that he you know carries himself even though he's still keeping those beast like qualities you can you can see like Todd was saying you can see him change through the movie and how he structures himself how he moves and things and it's it's subtle, but it's it, it's very noticeable if you're looking for it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> now, and when now when he transforms back too, it's it's also interesting to remember because um, Bree has mentioned earlier about his his eyes and stuff like that. Is he? That's how Belle recognizes him after he changes back because she almost doesn't believe it, even though she saw it. She's looking at him and she's like, "Is this for real? Is this really? He's not the beast anymore." And she looks into his eyes and she sees his eyes and she touches his hair, which she was used to stroking, because that was how that was her her affection for him was never a kiss before that kiss at the end. It was always that stroke on the face, mm-hmm. and she kind of sort of does that to him. And she looks into his eyes and she shows, "It is you." And you know, because she could see past what he was, so she could see that it was him, and it was just you know that's a very meaningful, touching moment for me. So. That's when I started sobbing hysterically. I'm, I'm for Klimt. I'm for Klimt. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so one one more question before before I ask you guys to rate the movie. Was there anything you didn't like in this movie? Oh. Hmm. Um, yeah, difficult question. I mean... I mean, obviously, the heart-wrenching scenes are you're not going to like, but but you accept, you know. Yeah, um, maybe I should say not anything you didn't like, but anything that you didn't think was done, per, you know, particularly well. I'm I'm not fond of the scene where Gaston um, proposes because I find that he kind of I, I don't like I'm you know 
being the modern guy that I am, I don't like when guys force themselves on women like that. So, and I kind of sort of he feel you know he's cornering her. He's locked. He goes into her house. He locks the door behind her. And there's something just wrong behind the way that scene is. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. See, yeah. I, I really like that scene because I just love the way that she turns the tables on him and the way he ends up in the mud. Oh, yeah. Well, no, it's got a good ending. It's just there's his, his intentions just scare the heck out of me is what I mean. You know, it's... Yeah. I hear you. There's a lot of menace to him that, especially once you've seen it once, I think. Like, the first time you see it, he's not, you know, because at that point he hasn't, you haven't seen any kind of a dark side at all to him. But I think that scene kind of takes on a different meaning once you've seen the movie and you've seen what happens to him at the end of the movie. You can see what's inside of him, and yeah. Oh, I did want to make mention of um, another one of the scenes that was very powerful was when um, Belle was in the snow with her with the horse. I think Philippe, right? Was the name yeah, of the horse? Philippe. Yep. Philippe. And um, the wolves came along. And, and, you know, you're scared for her, but you, you know that something's going to happen. And then all of a sudden the beast comes along. That was a very powerful scene. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that's... Well, it's also it's also the turning point in the movie, right? Because at that point is when the Florence Nightingale syndrome kicks in because that's really the key point when they when they fall in love is he – she he saves her and she takes care of him. And from that moment forward, everything is different. Then they start falling in love. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so I, I've never heard it described as Florence Nightingale syndrome before, though. That's I like that, Tom. <laughs> it's, it's transference. That's it what is. It is. I mean, yeah. That's what it is. I just never heard it described that way. You're right. Yeah. Good call. Yeah. All right. So, moment of truth. One to five stars. What are we giving Beauty and the Beast? Bree? Five. No question about it. Five. Unbelievable. Todd? Five. Well... I'll be honest. It's not my favorite Disney movie. I'm not going to say what that is yet. When we get there, I'll say it. Um, I would probably say – can I like do decimal points or are we not allowed to do decimal De- points? Decimal points, really? Oh, I okay. did. Well, I'm, I'm a tech guy. I well, use decimal true. points every day. All right. I will say four Lumiere matchstick canes. What? I have no Not, idea. Instead of four said. stars, four Lumiere of matchstick canes. You know, the, when he's doing Be Our Guest, he grabs the matchstick and that's his cane during the whole thing. Oh, okay. Sorry. So I didn't want to do stars. Stars seem so boring. So you're giving it a four? A four out of five. Okay. <laughs> and what about you, Ryan? Uh, oh, it's a five all the way. Absolutely. The, to me, of the. I'm like Todd, it's not my favorite, but of that era of. You know, starting with Mermaid and going through Lion King, it's the best film of the of those four of Mermaid, Aladdin, Lion King, yeah. and this one. To me, it's the best film. It's not my favorite of those, but it's it's definitely the best constructed film to me. You all know what my favorite is, but just look at my avatar on Twitter. But don't say anything. <laughs> Whatever could you be talking about? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. So we we get two fives and a four. That's going to do it for, for this week's show. So I hope you've all enjoyed our look at Beauty and the Beast. Um, our next show, we're going to review Tangled, uh, if we can all get out and see that. So until then, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Visit us at uh, DisneyFilmProject.com for me or uh, DisneyDrivenLife.com or TouringPlans.com. Both Todd and I uh, are on there a, a, a fair bit. Or Adventures of Bree at AdventuresOfBree.blogspot.com. Basically, we're all over the Internet. We're kind of running it. So just, you know, 
lay back and enjoy it, folks. If you like the show, please tell your friends. Um, tell tell everyone. Um, there's uh, each of you. I, I expect to have around 572 friends uh, that you can tell about the show, and then we'll take care of everything else. Or you know, just leave us a good review on iTunes if you do. So whatever you do, spread the word. Join us in your admiration of the wide world of Disney films, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye, everyone.